What is the canon? How is it defined? What should it look like? And should we even have it in the first place? Hello, this is Anya Leonard, founder and director of Classical Wisdom. You're listening to Classical Wisdom Speaks, a podcast dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds. Today I'm speaking with Zachary Davis, the founder and president of Lyceum, an educational audio studio, the VP of content for Himalaya, as well as the organizer of the Sound Education Conference. Zachary is also the host of Ministry of Ideas and Writ Large, a founding member of the Hub and Spoke Audio Collective. We will be discussing the history of the canon, how it has evolved, and what it should look like. But before we begin, I'd like to give a quick thank you to our Classical Wisdom Society members who make this podcast possible. If you would like to help support the classics and become a society member, please go to classicalwisdom.com and click start here. Now, onto the canon. What should be in it and who should decide? Um, but I feel like right now there's so much conversation happening about the value of the classics, about the role of humanities, its future, you know, how these, these works, its position in our current society whether we should be talking about it. Um, and there's just a lot of conversation happening. Uh, and a lot of it comes back down to the canon. And I think a lot of people talk about this without really knowing anything about it. <laughs> uh, they don't know about the history. They don't know about how it's defined, what it really means. And so I think if you're going to have an important dialogue about the role of ancient history in our modern lives, uh, and, and about the classics in general, I think we should define the terms um, and discuss just at the very beginning, what is the canon and how is it defined? So the word canon comes from the word for a reed, like a grass, you know, a reed. And they used these reeds to make measurements. So you'd be like, all right, this block of the building is three, you know, cannons long. Um, and eventually that reed and that standard got used for measurement of all kinds. So canon at its most fundamental is something to measure by, a standard. Um, the word classic comes from a Roman writer who mentioned, um, you know, that there are some works that are more distinguished than ordinary works. Um, this sense that there, there really are differences. Some there's works of greater quality than others. So um, a measurement of quality, um, a belief that some works of literature or philosophy or art are more worthy of our attention than others, that's at the heart of what the canon means. I think the canon is the framing that gets a lot of, is really generating most of the heat of this conversation. Um, and, and the heart of it is simply, we live in a pluralistic uh, society in the modern West. At one point, it may have made sense to say there is the canon that is relatively agreed upon, um, but that has all come under contestation um, 
and I think that's the state the state of the the conversation today is um, what value is there in having these these lists of works that supposedly are more worthy of attention um, that works for all people in a society or has it outlived its usefulness in a place as vast as the United States of America and so I mean that's a very good point like do we need a canon? I mean, maybe before we get into that, like, let's go back into just the history of the canon, because I still think this is uh, valuable in understanding how it's evolved over time, uh, and that it isn't necessarily a static thing uh, that belongs to sort of in a museum. Uh, so maybe you could just tell me like a brief history of, of the canon after it's been defined as the word, but, but, but how it was formed originally. Yeah, so I think canons were formed uh, for educational purposes and for ecclesiastical purposes. So school teachers uh, needed to know what to assign their students, um, lecturers and philosophers, you know, they had to make choices with limited time. What should my students focus on? And so the classical world put together uh, works that they found more valuable. Um, Plato, Aristotle, um, their successors, and um, it was always contested. I, I think it's very important to know that the canon has never been fixed. It's always changing, always undergoing debate about who should be in and who should be out. And that's part of the, the joy of canon conversations is like, is my opinion right? Um, or is yours or is somebody else's? So um, yes, it, there, were, there, were, uh, there had to be choices about what to assign students. Um, and so canons are are created and forged for pedagogical purposes, um, and also simply when great minds share their opinion of what the best works are, it has a kind of authority. So, um, so that that too is is how canons are formed. It is, though, I think one of the valences that's important to understand about why these debates feel bigger than just the top 10 lists is to think about the religious um, or theological roots of canon. So one of the first ways that the word canon was really used was in the forging of the New Testament and the Christian Bible. What books are authoritative and what books aren't? And, and once again, this was partly about resources. There was only so much room that that these uh, compilers could afford um, to include. There's there, there was only so much room for certain texts, and so not every work that was supposed to be um, you know important or sacred could make it into some of these collections. And that's why um, to this day the Protestant uh, New Testament, um, or the you know the Protestant Bible and the, and the Catholic Bible and the Orthodox Bible all have some differences because the Bible itself, like the most authoritative book itself, went on through a process of debate about what should be included, what should not, what was canon, what what should what was not. So um, knowing that you know the the debates about that have. You know, be incredibly intense. I mean, people people have been killed about their beliefs about what texts are sacred or not. Um, and so as time went on, and you know, especially 
especially with um let's let's go up to the romantic age you can imagine that all of that energy about which texts were most sacred got transformed into um into the romantic interest in literature as the soul of a culture so romantic a lot of romantic uh thinkers victorian thinkers um could sense that christianity's pull on the hearts of its citizens was was waning um and so what could take its place well the kind of you know the national production of its people national literature national thinkers national art and so um there was a lot of effort put into deciding which which artists which thinkers which writers really represented the nation as a whole um what had that vital spirit and so these canons are formed partly to express something deep about about the 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 nature of the political community that these works are coming from and so in 19th century curriculum 20th century curriculum you know what the what is in the canon is saying a lot more than just these books are good it's more about these books are who we are and that is again this question of identity um is why these questions are so heated and so um after world war ii um while uh decolonization is happening around the world new questions were raised by post-colonial thinkers about the current canon you know of the 60s and the 70s is like what books are included and why and um a critique began to be advanced and 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 gained a lot of traction and purchase that the uh the current canon is not just a judgment about aesthetic quality it's also a tool of oppression it's a way of asserting dominance of one group over another and um pri you know more specifically this is about european and white american oppression um over their subjugated populations uh both internally and around the world and so um you know a, a very famous critique was uh chinua achebe's critique of heart of darkness where he grew up loving that book um and then at some point he realized oh wait a second like he's writing about my like me he's writing about like my fellow africans and you know we're humiliated um and he sort of sees um that there are arguments in fact dangerous arguments um bad arguments dehumanizing arguments embedded in a lot of these texts and that we needed to rethink the canon reformulate the canon to be more inclusive of all the peoples that were engaging with these works of art um and a canon that would help us achieve equality and justice uh and humanity for all so the canon i mean it it's sort of a concept but is it something more concrete like is there a specific book that everybody agrees on is the canon and therefore something to fight against i mean i I sort of automatically think of say Harold Bloom who wrote the Western Canon, but 
I mean, the idea too that you say we live in a pluralistic society, is there an American canon? Is there a European canon? Is there a Chinese canon? I mean, do does the concept of a canon exist in many cultures and many societies? And is it agreed upon the canon that people are fighting against in the first place? Every culture has works of literature and art that they deem better than others, representative, more representative than others. So yes, there is a there's a Chinese canon, um, there's an Indian canon. The way that they describe and think about their canons are are going to be culturally specific. I think the Western canon um, was forged under a number of pressures and a lot of anxieties about cultural cohesion. And I think it was often emphasized um, as being more fixed and eternal than it was ever meant to be. Um, so what are, you know, what are we really talking about with the Western canon? I think most people would say it refers to, you know, a hundred to 500 works that have stood the test of time. This test of time is really important to canons that, in that the, the, the more kind of eternal belief in canons is that these are works that are universally valuable, that have universal lessons and insights and pleasures that go beyond its time and its place. And, and so the, those who really embrace the canons would argue with limited time in a life, you should really focus on the very best stuff. And these are the works that over generations and generations of readers have been experienced as sublime, as superior, as extra enlightening uh, versus the millions of other works of, of art that have been, have been um, shared and, and created. So there's a there's a timelessness argument there, and I think the argument the the, the reason that the the sixties and seventies uh, canon wars became so heated is because saying we need a new canon is recognition that a culture is changing, and there's always going to be some resistance to a culture changing, especially. Um, when power dynamics are are impacted, and so um, you know who who is at the which which figures are at the core of the Western canon? Well, I think you basically would say you've got the philosophical canon of the ancient Greeks, of uh, Socrates, Plato, um, and Aristotle, um, and then you have uh, certain kind of great authors like Shakespeare. Uh, like Tolstoy, that are sort of, you know, at at the heart of these are works so extraordinary that you you cannot live a life without having experienced them. Um, the edge cases have never been the real problem, which is why the canon wars often hinge on Shakespeare. <laughs> There's something about Shakespeare. It's like when when we talk about decolonizing um, the curriculum and people propose getting rid of Shakespeare. 
there's a lot of people invested in the genius of Shakespeare, and they worry that depriving students of that experience is extremely misguided. Well, I mean, there, the, the problem, I suppose, of exclusion of something that is so cornerstone to future works is that you then lose the understanding and value of all of the works that are built upon it. Um, and, you know, I often say this with regards to studying the classics that, of course, the time period in and of itself is interesting, but a huge value add in understanding it is to understand everything that came after it and, and all of the people who are influenced by it, whether they are in the West or not, whether, you know, I mean, hey, I'm here in Argentina. Borges is the most beloved author of, you know, of here in Argentina, and he is a classicist through and through. And you don't understand a fraction of his work, you know, South America's most famous author, unless you know anything about the classics. So um, I guess if you, if you were trying to teach somebody the history of, of literature, philosophy, and understanding the core things, taking out some of the fundamental stones that other works are, are built upon would lose your understanding of future authors who might be from extremely diverse backgrounds um, because they were also influenced by Shakespeare. So it, it seems problematic that it, it, to take away really influential works. That's right. Everybody should read the Bible, not because you believe that its religious doctrines are necessarily true, but because you you can't understand our culture without reference to the Bible. Um, and so every you know every work of literature since since then has been shaped in some way by a work that that important. Um, so I, I think you're right. Um, it's not just to you know we don't read these works because we're interested in the Roman Empire. We read them precisely because we're not, but that they're still relevant to 21st century America. Um, so that's that's certainly a reason to keep reading great works. Back to, you know, so it is there still a reason to have a canon and like, what should it look like to reflect a changing, changing demographics and changing cultural sensibilities? Sometimes you hear the argument, you know, don't take things off the canon, don't cancel the canon, just add to the canon. Um, and I'm sympathetic to that. But again, it's the reason the canon exists is because of limited time, limited resource, limited attention. So, you know, a list of 10 works that everybody should read is more useful than a list of uh, a thousand works that everybody should read, which is why what's in those 10 matters a lot. Um, so adding forever uh, another, you know, great, great things to these lists doesn't actually solve the, the resource and time problem. Um, yeah, so I mean, that that's an excellent point. Um, and but I would like to sort of say something else about Shakespeare that actually you mentioned in your podcast at large when you spoke a bit about the canon uh, was the fact that one of the values in Shakespeare, for instance, was that he sort of for the first time appealed to a wider audience that, you know, in the new form of theater, people were of different social stratas sort of joined together in a way that they hadn't previously and that 
Therefore, it had an, an appeal to a wider audience. And that's part of the reason why he is so enjoyable and so replicated and, and so important and so influential. But that this is a feature that you might find in other great works that maybe people think sometimes that we continue these works simply because we have continued them without realizing what they necessarily did in their time period. And so uh, recently I had a podcast with Barker and uh, Joel Christensen um, about Homer's Thebes. And I don't know if you've read their book, but it was sort of like Homer incorporated a lot of other myths and traditions in the region into Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, and whether it was sampling or stealing, uh, the, the, the end result is that these works had a greater appeal because they actually catered to a wider audience, a more diverse and pluralistic society than we like to think it is nowadays. We just think, oh, that's Greece. But actually, it was very diverse. It was very multicultural. And, and that those works were catering to that wideness of audience. So that the value in those works is actually much is reflective of some of the values our current society has in regards to incorporating a wider audience and being diverse and, and trying to appeal to a wider audience. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, Shakespeare borrowed so many ideas and stories from every, everywhere he could. Um, I was just thinking about the Brothers Grimm. You know, they collected all these stories that came from really across the world. It kind of found their way into Germany at the time, but a lot of these are Persian, a lot of these are Indian, but then they adapt them. And I think stories can be adapted in different places in different times to serve different audience needs. And that's what makes them really great. We can, we can borrow and learn from each other. So what are the, you know, constantly the argument that I'm making um, in, in a lot of my work is I think that we need to learn from one another. Like we, we cannot, we should not imagine a world in which each group sticks to themselves completely. Um, but instead we should have bonds of exchange, bonds of love um, and bonds of, of education that we, we share, <laughs> we, we borrow, uh, we give and we learn. And that's that's the joy of human cultures. There's just so much exchange going on, um, and so my my often I I worry about um, cultural appropriation kinds of arguments because it assumes that you know it assumes that these stories any stories of the past emerged in isolation when like that was never true. I mean, Greeks were borrowing from other cultures when they came up with their stories, and then it got passed on and you know on and on. So, um, you know, I think we should always be willing to go outside of our own culture to learn from others and to, and to adapt to our own needs. That said, I, I'm, I'm really supportive of a living canon and not a dead canon, a living canon which does adapt. Um, and there are works that we used to, as a culture think were like the best. And then, you know, upon further reflection and thinking about our new values, we, we see as less important. And, and that's all right too. Um, and I think if culture isn't living, it's not really culture. You know, it's, it's some other thing. It's 
some kind of fetish for the past or something, but it's, it's not a living culture. Yeah. You know, I completely agree with that. And um, I love to kind of remind people about this, even when it talks about, you know, borders or movements of societies and things like society has never been in one spot. It's always been changing. There's always new people coming and people going. There's always changing values. And, and, and it's not in one straight line. It's not like always in progress. It's, you know, there are time periods, I, I like to remind people, sometimes ancient Greek world, they think, oh, you know, it's just all oppressive for women. You're like, well, you know, you go back to archaic Greece, and they, they probably did better than in the classical Greek era. It, it, nothing is, is just this one uniform this is our society. This is our culture. Um, and even if you were to like, say, go back to English culture, okay, when was it the Normans and the Saxons? I mean, how far back are we going? Because they're constantly having different influences and influxes. So um, yeah, society, I completely agree that, that there is a sort of living canon. And I suppose one question I have in a way is the problem with the word Western. Um, and I think this is where people kind of get, get complicated. Uh, because I guess in our Western society now, it's considered much more pluralistic and, and diverse. But it's interesting because like, I've spent a lot of time in the Far East, for instance, and I've, I lived in Taiwan, and I also lived in the Middle East and places like that. When you're in those cultures, um, you know, they don't, know that much about Western culture. Uh, not, not as much, we, like, I think in the West, we think of ourselves as so influential, but actually n nobody really cares as much as we do, or we think that they do. Uh, and as you said, like, you know, in China, when people are learning English, one of the first things they are taught to do is to read the Bible because it's so fundamental to Western culture. But it is shocking how little knowledge the Far East has on the West, you know, and a perfect example might be like when that Thai pop star got in trouble for wearing a swastika shirt. She didn't know anything about the Nazis. Like that piece of history is just not that known in Thailand. Uh, and at least not for millennial pop stars, I suppose. But <laughs> I guess, so the question is, you know, when we talk about the Western canon, should that include Western cultures, and, I'm, and I don't mean that in a superiority way or oppressive way or anything. I mean, it's purely in a, we're studying this group of people versus that group of people, like Canadian history versus German history. I do think the West is real. The West is defined as uh, the combination of classical and Christian civilization. Um, so I think, I think the West is real. I think the Western, the reason the idea of Western X is so charged is because of the legacy and memory and trauma of colonialism. So the West happened to conquer the world and they did at the, at the tip of a spear. And so there's going to be lingering fear and hatred and trauma for thinking about the cultural the cultural output of something called the west uh, there's been a big effort to kind of parochialize the west because it was it 
purported to be universal culture. So the, the Enlightenment's great ambition was to not just discover European truth, but to discover capital T truth, and that its cultural output would be universally great for all people of all times. So that universalism was a strength uh, for colonialism, and it's a liability for a more multicultural world, or at least a world where Europe no longer tries to assert its supremacy. So, um, but nonetheless, there is something called the West, and that is uh, European and kind of Anglo colonies um, that is distinct from other world civilizations. America's interesting though, right? Like how much, how much does your America have to do with Europe anymore? <laughs> there's a lot, there's a lot that's shared, but you know, maybe it's better to think about America as actually closer to Brazil or Argentina as a mixture of cultures with indigenous groups, uh, African slaves, um, and and uh, you know colonists and um, and immigrants over time, that it's it's actually got a lot more in common with each other than this you know this kind of maybe older antiquated idea of a cohesive West. So I'm I'm even open to arguments that Western Europe makes sense as a kind of civilization, but it might be time to rethink whether United States of America <laughs> and Canada are, are, are so close to Europe and, and other Western European countries culturally that it's better to think of them as one entity rather than as separate things. It's sort of like wine, like let's stick to new world or old world, you know? <laughs> That's right. I mean, and I mean, we've been separated <laughs> for a long time now, you know, 400 years from this, this parent continent. Um, and so many new people have come and have changed the United States. And so I think that, that holding on to the curriculum and the canon of Western Europe is partly just those with European descent wanting to stay close to mom and dad wanting to still feel like they're part of this longer story. And maybe it is time to start our own story with a, you know, a, a kind of different canon. It doesn't mean getting rid of everything, but I, I'm, I really think it's important that you, you, can still, you can still deploy the benefits of a canon, but change what's included and, and what it's doing and who it's for. Um, you know, you're you're totally right. Uh, I think that's an excellent point about you, America is it's almost uniquely obsessed with their genealogy. Uh, you know, you talk to any American and they'll quickly tell you like five different nationalities. My grandmother's Swiss and my father's French and my you know and then this person and then everybody can just like list them off uh, because it's it's uh, and I don't know if that's a, a unique feature of America in regards to trying to find a longer identity that that is partly an American trait, that they, they want to have that sense of kind of a longer history, that and that might be part of the rise of this sort of culture of, of focusing on identities that 
people are so obsessed with. But um, I, I don't know. This is just me really <laughs> thinking about it out loud. I, I'm not sure that Americans are uniquely obsessed with their genealogy. I just think that they actually have to think about it because if you're Indian or Mexican or, you know, Romanian, you don't ever think about what's my ethnic identity. It's just given to you and everybody around you. And, you know, so as an immigrant, as an immigrant country, yeah, like <laughs> you don't immediately know what it is. You have to be told in a lot of cases, like where your ancestors came from. And for a lot of you know, I, I think I think definitely, obviously, for a lot of Black Americans, but even for a lot of White Americans, like it's all shrouded in the mists of of time. Like nobody knows. I think a lot of White Americans genuinely don't really know. They might have a mythology, like yeah, we're mostly English, but like if you looked, I'm not sure that it would bear out. So, but yeah, I think you're right. Every everyone needs to know where they came from, and literature is partly stories that help you understand where you came from. So let's get on to the living canon because I do love this concept and I, I love to explore it a bit more. How, how does the living canon work? How, how is it sort of decided upon? And, I mean, who's sort of the authority that's creating it and how do we sort of build onto it? So educators, I think, remain the most important canon makers. The most uh, authoritative Canon makers are probably at elite universities deciding what should survey courses on, you know, literature, philosophy, history read. So um, assigning books in the classroom is is one very important way the canons are made. At the national level, um, you have, te- you know, teacher uh, or K through twelve curriculum that's also decided upon and the state level and even at the school level. So educators are a big part of what makes the canon. Um, And then you have authoritative cultural critics. So you mentioned Harold Bloom in 1994 with with his book and there are um, always new lists being published and created by different organizations like you know, Modern Library or uh, Penguin or newspapers and magazines of all kinds who put together their best of lists. And that's one other way in which we learn about which which works are in this particular canon. Um, so once again, there is no single canon. There's just lots of conversations about what's the best. Um, and so that that's how it's made. I think... Um, you know, in, in, in the present, every year new works are being created and shared. And the ones that win prizes, uh, the ones that sell a lot, the ones that get really, really quality reviews, they become part of the mix, become part of the possibility of adding to the canon, being part of the living canon. So... Um, uh, and then, and you know, basically, we all are part of canon making now because of social media, because because we can all share our voice. So, what you talk about on Twitter, what you share on Facebook, um, and what you buy, that all helps shape a cultural canon. 
And what do you think is the goal of a canon? I mean, you said you have a limited time to read a certain number of books. And so we have this desire to, to read X number of things. Is the goal to be knowledgeable? Is the goal to be moral? Is the goal to continue the history of humanity? I mean, what is the aim of these books in the first place? Like any great book, you can't reduce it to a single thing. They're bigger than one single goal. Every great book has so much going on that is valuable. Um, so there's no single purpose of the collection of works that we consider the best. But I, I would I would hazard my favorite purpose. And my favorite person is my favorite purpose is the canon helps you become human. The canon gives you the tools to know how to become most human. You can say, well, you know, we're all human, we're born. What I mean by most human is the most capacity for experiencing fullness as a human being, fullness of joy, fullness of love, fullness of adventure and growth. And these books are not, you don't read them to just drop, drop names at a, at a cocktail party. You read them because they can help you feel alive and they can change your ability to be more fully you. There is a there is uh, lots of possibilities for Anya Leonard, and great works can inspire you to live out different and more full versions of yourself. I love that. Yeah, it just connects you, I feel like, in history, in time, in place, you know, uh, to feel the full spectrum of the world, you know, even the, the bad stuff, you know, you don't read Brothers K to feel good, you know, you, you read it to, to feel deeply. Um, now, I'd love to just kind of focus it on you, actually, for a second. Um, you've been working on, like, a lot of really cool projects and quite diverse with regards to educational platforms and, and podcasts. You've got Writ Large, a Ministry of Ideas, and you've got these conferences um, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about what your goal is with sort of this really cool wide spectrum of just putting ideas out there. Yeah, I really love the canon because I think the canon has helped me in my life. And so I think of my vocation and my mission as helping as many people as possible understand themselves and their society and their time better. Mm -hmm. And so everything that I do generally revolves around helping people engage with the humanistic tradition um, in ways that fit their life. So that it, whether it's online courses, whether it's conferences, or whether it's these podcasts, and I love podcasts because they're just beautiful vehicles for sharing ideas and stories um, so that you can make a trip to the grocery store special or a walk around the block illuminating. Um, and so that's, that's what I do. And um, I think what is fantastic about 
the humanities is that they do adapt with the times and there's, you know, these are timeless questions, timeless answers, timeless voices. Um, you know, I mean, I was on a flight last year and I was reading uh, Nikolai Gogol, um, The Overcoat, and I was, I was just laughing out loud on a plane. And it's 20, you know, it's 2020. And I'm, I'm like dying of laughter, making my neighbors think I'm a weirdo because I'm, you know, I'm reading this old text. I, I, I'm not from Russian culture, you know, and, but, but his, his genius is still extremely relevant um, and extremely delightful. And I think that's another thing that's often overlooked about um, the debates about the canon is sometimes these books are seen as, as like eating your broccoli, like, oh, I guess I better read, you know, I better, better read Tolstoy. Actually, the, these are the books that were so delightful and, and edgy and exciting that people couldn't put them down. Thank you for listening to Classical Wisdom Speaks, a podcast dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds. If you'd like to learn about all the great projects Zachary Davis has been working on, please go to www.zacharystephendavis.com.